Hi, my name is Heather Shorin Yeruso, and this is the Spark Zen Podcast. Thank you for listening. I'm delighted to be in conversation today with Judith Regeer. She is a Dharma teacher in the Zen lineage of Katagiri Roshi and co-founded Clouds and Water Zen Center in St. Paul, Minnesota, where she is currently the senior Dharma teacher emeritus. Her writing has appeared in the anthologies The Eightfold Path, Zen Teachings in Challenging Times, The Hidden Lamp, The Path of Compassion, Receiving the Marrow, and Seeds of Virtue, Seeds of Change. Today, Judith and I will be discussing her recently published memoir, Untangling Karma, Intimate Zen Stories on Healing Trauma. So thank you so much, Judith, for being my guest today on the Spark Zen podcast. I'm very happy to be here. I look forward to a dialogue. Well, first, let me say that in reading your, your memoir, Untangling Karma, you mentioned in the introduction about exposing your underbelly. And boy, that was not an understatement. Could you talk a little bit about that process? Maybe you even had with your editor and also perhaps your husband's role in this, because you're quite detailed about issues in your childhood, as well as in your marriage. And what prompted you to be so explicit and vulnerable? Good question. <laughs> so definitely my underbelly is showing. And that's unusual, I think, for Zen teachers. Mostly we don't show our underbellies. It's very much in my personality to wear my heart on my sleeve, kind of. And as a Zen teacher, I had to learn some boundaries about what was appropriate and what wasn't appropriate to share. And I wasn't writing so much as a Zen teacher, although it's completely there underlying everything. My Zen practice is completely the foundation for the book because this is the hardest part, how frank I am and how that's going to be received. I can say that my husband read the sex chapter and bless his heart, he said it was fine. He actually said was, well, this is fairly clear or honest about what happened between us. And I really tried not to go into blame or shame or anything like that, which I think I succeeded. From my perspective as a reader, it didn't feel to me like you were shaming or blaming really anyone, you know, including your parents or your brothers, your oh, yeah. partner. I really felt like, you know, and this, of course, is my own sliver of the sky because I also feel that I do bring forward my underbelly and I'm a little bit more vulnerable and honest, I think, sometimes with within this structure of Zen Center. Yeah, so I thought, I've been an artist since I've been a little girl. I was a dancer, I did writing, and I do quilts now, beautiful Buddhist iconographic quilts. In fact, on the cover, that's my art. But when I was younger, I learned, whether this is true or not, I don't know, but mostly that the deeper you go, the more honest you are, you have the possibility of being connected with humanity or with everyone. And if you don't go really deep, you might not necessarily be telling the truth. So that's kind of the philosophy behind it, that the deeper and more honest I was, perhaps that would be what would help people the most. And when I started, I started with just, oh, some kind of lighthearted, like I wanted to share some stories that were profound in my life that happened, I think, because of Zen practice, even though they're not actually about Zen practice. But as I got into the book, first of all, I realized that three of the chapters are very, very heavy or deep or shocking, maybe. But I began to feel the overall thread of what was happening in the whole book. And I did work with Sandy Boucher. I don't know if you know her. 
she was a wonderful writing mentor and editor, like a developmental editor. And she helped me shape the book. She helped me not to fall off the edge of journaling. You know, she would pull me back from saying too much about my dad or saying too much about my kids. Pretty much my kids were taken out of the book by the, my editor. So it was a lot of conversation about what was possible or not. That's just like what Zen teachers assist their students with is similar to what the editor was assisting you with. What's appropriate, what's maybe not so inappropriate, what's germane in getting across your overarching themes about, as you say in the, the book's title, Untangling Karma. And in, in your introduction, you, you talk about this journey, the through line really is how you were seeking a way out of the suffering and trauma of your childhood. What's been very interesting for me is I wrote this book over maybe five year period, maybe a little longer even, and it was hard. I cried and I said, I can't say this out loud. And it was kind of pulling teeth to get the book out. I actually did have a healing process through writing this book and now having to have to talk about it. The leap that I wanted to make spiritually, oh my God, I, I feel like the Dharma allowed me to make the leap. So personally, the book was not done for naught. Personally, I got what I wanted to, to move past my history, my childhood trauma, and be freer, more loving, more gentle. And the introduction, you talk about the spiritual quantum leaps. I was curious what that spiritual quantum leap was, but you've just mentioned it now. So the way that the book, all the stories in the book, and the way kind of that I think it was healing was first of all, it placed all my traumas systemically. Each of my traumas reflected the world that we lived in and also the history of my parents' life. And somehow that enlarging the scope of my pain was healing. So let's just linger there for a moment about enlarging the perspective. In the first chapter about World War II and no self, and you discuss going on these bearing witness retreats to Auschwitz-Birkenau, where you as a person of Jewish heritage would have been a victim in that setting. And then you also go on another uh, Jizo Bodhisattva practice to Hiroshima, whereas an American, you would have been a perpetrator. So that flip-flop, as you talk about the cycle of victim and perpetrator, it really resonated with me in many ways as well, because as you pull out, as you're saying, we enlarge in our perspective, which I think Zen Buddhism is very helpful for doing that, and sitting Zazen as well. And now with learning more about the intergenerational trauma, of course, pulling back and seeing, oh, your parents, like their parents and their parents and their parents. So then it's not as personal, even though it's a karmic momentum, it's not as personal. So if you could frame that experience of the not self characteristic, which I found really profound within these experiences of bearing witness, that'd be really wonderful. This is very, very important because victim perpetrator runs throughout the whole book, you know, and it is, and it was Bernie Glassman. He was the person who really taught me that victim perpetrator spins it's a duality that spins. If you look into your perpetrator's history, they're victims. And let me say that this book was an investigation for me into all the different 
parts of myself that I felt still were hating. So sometimes I say the book was an exorcism of hatred. And that has to do with victim perpetrator. If you solidly think of yourself as a victim, then you always hate your perpetrator and you make an other, very strong other. But if you see that that's not how the world actually works, victim and perpetrator spin around each other, then you can soften that or release that. Just like yourself, I was also sexually molested as a child. And that ability to forgive the perpetrators came from knowing that in some cases, I knew that they themselves had been sexually molested as little boys. And then you wonder, okay, well then who are the, the teenagers who molested the boys who molested me? It just goes on and on and on. There is no one first cause. There's unfathomable causes and conditions. Right. And when we can start to depersonalize that a little bit through Zazen and psychology, and like you're saying, understanding, oh, this is where my mother's and father's trauma came from, was from their Jewish heritage and culture, broadening that out. So that already is in one way, a little bit of a no self, right? It's like, oh, my mother and father are rising causes and conditions in this unfathomable ocean of causes and conditions that harkens not only back to World War II, but way be before that. So looking at those threads of trauma, how they're woven into our, our childhood experience because of that unfinished karma of our parents' generation. And that's really the courage that you exhibit in this memoir and your determination. Like it's almost, I felt <laughs> like there was this Judith the tiger, like leaping, the tigress leaping from the page with this determined energy, which I found really inspiring to work through, untangle this crazy knot, this crazy knot that of trauma. Thank you for noticing that, I'll say. I have had, oh, it makes me cry. I have had a really strong determination to heal. And I also have had a really strong determination for liberation in the Buddhist sense. That is one of my major characteristics of people who know me, you know, is tenacity, tenacity. I'm a Taurus too. So, whoa, you know, I'm going to find, I'm going to do it. And, but, and it's interesting for me when you use the word depersonalize, because I agree with you. However, oddly, ironically, depersonalization in this case came from really investigating my personal story. And that always isn't encouraged in Buddhism. They like to get to depersonalization in a different way. Yeah, it's called spiritual bypassing. Yes, it is. <laughs> Thank you for noticing. As you're saying this, maybe you can touch on escaping to the mountaintop of Zen, the spiritual mm -hmm. bypassing of, oh, you know what? Just drop the story, go back to your breath. Everything will work out. Or just that kind of detachment that actually is a bypassing rather than a full excavation of our karma beings, yeah. right? And then, and then sort of going through that tangle of karmic beings for that release to actually be really deep because you have been investigating and excavating. So it's like using Zen practice to either escape our problems or actually face our karmic issues. And that's, that's what you talk about, how you had that realization of, oh, okay, there's this mountaintop and I can sit here in highly concentrated body mind states. And then I come out of those and I'm yelling at my boys because they're not getting their winter clothes on. So I, I love, I love how you really just beautifully through your own experience, just lay out that spiritual bypassing and saying, oh, I want my insides to reflect my outside. I'm so happy that, that you got that because that's one of the main through lines. And it, it happened in a very curious way, which is 
my some of my students, my senior students started to call me Roshi. And that was pleasing, appreciative. I am a pretty good Zen teacher. I taught for 30 years. But when they started calling me Roshi, I didn't feel, I felt like, what is this anxiety I still have in the pit of my stomach? Because I had done so much psychotherapy. I had done a 12-step work. I had done so much. And I felt like my personal karma was somewhat put to bed by what I had done. But there still was anxiety in me. And that's where I realized that I had to do intergenerational trauma work and systemic trauma work, because it was more than just what happened to me, Judith Regeer, as a little girl. It was much more than that. And that brings me to interdependence. When I was teaching or in a lot of my Buddhist life, I mainly taught concentration, like you were saying, or getting off the wheel, or some kind of transcendent kind of spirituality. And through this book, I totally got insight into liberation being through interdependence, that, that there's no self, I'm completely the conditioning of my life, I just began that systems thinking is interdependence. And that freed me so much. And interdependence is systems thinking hyphen being. And that depersonalization, not in a spiritual bypassing way, is actually this Heather systems being. The causes and conditions that I call Heather are fluid interdependent selfing, right? Self as a verb. If you don't explore or investigate the conditions that cause your psychic structure as a child, I don't think you can move to non-self. I think you sort of can by these mind states and mindfulness and doing the dishes properly and all that stuff we learn in Zen Center. But I loved it when my students would come in and say, I am absolutely not peaceful. I am just filled with greed, anger, and delusion. And I would say, yay, you're right at it. We are now deconstructing your actual psychological structure that was made as a child. And I think this book was my last ditch effort kind of, <laughs> to release that structure. And I feel, actually, Heather, I, I, I'm very gently, softly saying, I do feel that my structure has gotten released. Mm -hmm. And I hope, my hope is that this book gives people hope that you can heal. Now, my joke is just 80%. You know, 80% healing is good enough for me. 80% enlightenment is good enough because I think perfectionism is a near enemy of enlightenment or a real enemy of enlightenment. I feel like you're bringing up some very important points of how Zen practice can be very instrumental in first of all, helping us to pay attention to what our psychic structures are while we're sitting still on a cushion or on a chair in our meditation practice. And those concentrated body-mind states, which of course are temporary and not really the goal. However, they also offer us a flavor of spacious awareness, something deeper, mysterious, way beyond Heather and Judith. So that little taste gets in there. However, without the teacher pointing us to, okay, yes, wonderful. You sat in, you know, Samadhi for the last hour, and then you just shouted at somebody <laughs> or you, know, you didn't follow the precepts or something like that. 
until we can really, like you're doing here in the book and in at this conversation, tease out those karmic, that karmic conditioning. And when that karmic conditioning isn't seen through and met with the experience of Zazen, and I also agree with you, I, I called it the three pillars of recovery is how I phrase what you were talking about with Zen, psychotherapy, and 12-step. That without really investigating our, our psycho-emotional beings, we could have these wonderful meditative states and still do harm to others, right? Yeah. Which you talk about in your section on misusing sexuality. It seems like 21st century Buddhism in the last five years, people are getting more open to psycho-emotional stuff. But it's why my book is a little scary because those people who are not into that will have pushback about this is too psychological. So that's one thing. What you said about meditation is one thing I think that's very wonderful for me about Zazen is it really taught me how to sit with my pain, how to hold lots of pain and just let it be. And also watching that the pain goes away. So that's very helpful. And I'd like to say one thing that I'm interested in a lot these days is that spiritual life has a transcendent aspect and a descending aspect. And because Buddhism obviously has come from a patriarchal background, the transcending aspect has really been, you couldn't get more magnificent teaching on the transcendent aspect of humans from Zen. It's very, very deep and, and Buddhism in general and particular, but the descending aspect, which is our stories, our children, our, the things that happen to us like sexual abuse or oppression, those things have been minimized, I would say. What I'm hoping for 21st century Buddhism, and also hoping because so many women are now in the teaching roles, that the descending aspect will surface. And then we'll see that they're not separate. You need mutuality. They, they mutually work together. As you said about meditation or Zazen, that allowed you to be with the pain without having to move away from it. In your experiences at Auschwitz-Birkenau and also at Hiroshima, Bernie Glassman Roshi talked about the three refuges. He rephrased it. So his additional three refuges, if you will, are don't know mind, bearing witness, and doing a loving action. So could you speak about Zazen and what arose for you in those experiences that helped to break open your heart mind and also a little around that, a little forgiving your parents in a way because of your experience at Auschwitz-Birkenau and this arising embodiment of not self. Zazen helped me learn how to concentrate to unify my mind. I can do that now after 50 years of meditating and teaching and all the things I've done is I have a strong, there's a word for it, jariki. It's the power of concentrated mind. So I, I, guess I could say I have a certain measure of Jariki that came from Zazen. That power to be in the present moment and to be at my footstep, that helped me be in these places of incredible overwhelm. Talk about flooding. <laughs> you know, you go to these places and you are flooded. But because I knew how to one step, one step, one step, I could listen, as I said in the book, listen to the trees at Auschwitz-Birkenau and hear what they had to say about what happened there or going to Nagasaki. I was so overwhelmed by the time I got to Nagasaki, that was our last place. I just spent the whole day 
with my mala, chanting the Jizo mantra and walking through the streets. That's how I handled my overwhelm. And I use Bernie's three things, don't know mind, which means for me, I'm very opinionated and I'm very intellectual. And I used to be, I'm working on it now, thank the Lord. I used to be very judgmental and my way was the right way. That's the opposite of don't know mind. So don't know mind. Oh, well, when you go to places that blow your mind, you have don't know mind anyway, because all your concepts have just gone out the window, especially in those types of places. It has also happened to me when I went to the slave castles in Ghana. It's just like, you can't keep your opinions. You're just a heart, a big open heart. The other thing that threads through the book, which is Brian Stevenson, who wrote the book, Just Mercy, and I went to his museum in Montgomery. He said, reconciliation only happens through truth saying. So in a way, bearing witness is truth saying. I can sit or be with the horror of samsara, of the dukkha, of what I experience. And I have enough concentration that I can sit there and do nothing really, just bear witness. And oh, this is my other issue that runs through the book, which is consequences. If you sit with the pain of the consequences, if you investigate the pain of the consequences, that's bearing witness from the heart of the pain, it can transform into energy to help you take an action and loving action or a wise action. And the action probably doesn't relate to your prejudged opinion. It's coming from a different place in yourself. With those three refuges of don't know mind, bearing witness, and doing a loving action, you talk about feeling when you're at Hiroshima, seeing through the bottom, like there's a bottoming out of the sense of a solid self. And you said that was partly because you were a Jewish woman practicing Zen Buddhism, wearing these robes from like medieval Japan. That no one else wears. That no one else wears. And then also like having bearing witness at, you know, like you said, these sites where thousands and thousands of people were murdered. The mind just can't take that in and try to make sense of it. Yeah. And you also felt that in practicing this Tong Lin, you felt this, that your own healing was happening too while you were meditating and practicing What's not usually a Zen practice, Tonglen. However, in a broad sense, it's all Buddhism, right? So I'm not so traditionalist. I'm like, whatever works to help me feel liberated. (laughs) Well, let's stop for a moment about Tonglen because that was one of the big practices that helped me. At a certain point, it was early in my teaching. I think it was the early 80s, or no, the late 80s and maybe the early 90s, I felt there was a hole in my heart in Zen practice. And and I'm a devoted Zen person, mostly, but I did feel that there wasn't enough direct teaching about uh, emotions. And especially, I came from a Japanese teacher, Katagiri Roshi, So we, loving kindness was not taught. I remember in like 2006 or so, when I started doing loving kindness in the Zendo, I got a lot of pushback and mostly from the men that this was not Zen, you know, and Tonglen also filled up that hole and it, it worked well with Zen because it rides on the breath. So breathing in the pain and breathing out love, kindness, gentleness. And when I was at Hiroshima, this is from the book, 
the last day I had been through a lot of crying and I was kind of done with I'm a bad Jew guilt and it was the last day and you were allowed not to follow the schedule and for the first time I put on my okesa and I did slow zen style walking meditation and the whole morning I did breathing in the pain and breathing out kindness which is why I came I wanted to pray for the dead but by the afternoon and I did walking meditation the whole day with my okesa on and by the afternoon, I couldn't tell on the in-breath or the out-breath who was healing who, you know? I was being healed also. As I say in the book, love was coming in and coming out on my breath. That was a really poignant day for me. As you mentioned in, in the book, you phrase it as like this energetic functioning right? No inside, no outside, the chi or prana of life flowing through us. And sometimes that's easier to be attuned to when we're in these concentrated body-mind states, whether that's sitting zazen or like you're saying here, you were, the Hindu phrase maybe is making japa with your mala as oh. you're walking with your robes on in a very ritualized, I'd say a ceremonial space even though you weren't in a side of a meditation hall. So that's really the power of that Tonglin, T-O-N-G-L-E-N practice of taking in the poison of the world and offering something beautiful and loving in its place. I'd like to say one other thing about Tonglin, which is quite a bit about what the book is. And it goes into this opening up to systems. There's a third aspect of Tonglen, you at a certain point, you change what you're looking at and you say, let's just say, okay, I'm a mom of older adults now, adult children, and I have pain around, they don't need me anymore. So Tonglen around that would be this third, what I call extending the Tonglen is I would do a meditation starting with myself, but then I would extend it. All the mothers who have pain around their adult children, and it's healing for your personal pain to know that it's actually not personal pain. How many millions of women mothers are going through what I'm going through? And all of a sudden the pain changes, or at least your attitude towards the pain changes. So that was very liberating for me. And it's kind of what the whole book is about, extending the Tonglen. And that universality of suffering, the first noble truth, it touches into our common humanity, regardless of whatever side of politics you find yourself on. For me, we need now is more of that. Let's look at our common humanity. What are the ways in which we can learn and experience a broader sense of self because I'm including all mothers of all genders in this Tonglen. So I want to say one thing that I often say to my students, there are a couple of aspects to spirituality. And one aspect is your private love of God or love of the Dharma, love of sitting, what you need privately. And then if you become a priest, especially, there's an institutional duty or demand. But I think it's helpful to kind of keep those separate since I left a lot of sanghas because of ethical breaches, that my private spiritual practice is very important that that strong that nothing gets in its way, that I do it every day, and that I'm in contact, conscious contact with the Dharma, with my higher energies. The institutional responsibilities come and go. As a trauma survivor, I'm not gonna be general. Me, 
as a trauma survivor, I had a lot of push energy, achievement energy, keep going, don't feel anything kind of energy. And I put that in my zazen too, that I was going to break through on this sitting, you know, kind of this urgent energy. And one speaking about a leap, that I did a leap, that's the leap. I've dropped that craving. I've dropped that this moment isn't enough. I've dropped that I have to sit more or I have to write another book or I have to do this or I have to do that. I just don't wanna do that anymore. Maybe that's cause I'm 71. And maybe that's because I've had a leap in my spiritual life where my second noble truth, my cravings, even for spiritual accomplishment have lessened. Yeah, the grasping mind of, I need to do this, get that, become this, not be that. It can be a gross or a psycho-emotional energy. And of course, since you were talking earlier about when you were talking about systems, right, we have to remember that we're in a highly competitive, super productivity focused system called capitalism. As you mentioned in the book, that what us Western women or Western people who have done a lot of psycho-emotional work on ourselves, we can bring that softening, I was going to say feminine, but let's just drop that dualistic understanding of gender traits and say a softening and a broadening into our Zazen and Buddhist practice. We need some effort, but it's not the same kind of effort that it's an effortless effort, right? It's a softening. To what you're saying, you really got what I am experiencing. And Again, with karma, it is possible to interrupt our patterning. So for example, I'm going on this book tour now and I'm really trying to do it softly, embodied, not too much. And I'm using the book tour actually as opportunities to interrupt my patterning. And interrupting the pattern, this karmic momentum, I feel like too, Zazen is so helpful for that because if we're not aware of what's happening, how could we ever stop it? And there's a wonderful Zen story about the villager seeing this man racing through on a galloping horse through the village. And it looks like the person on horseback is is going somewhere important. So the villager shouts, where are you going? And the person on the horse says, ask the horse, <laughs> right? And so it was like, we have with the, the horse of the habit energies is what's constantly carrying us. Mm-hmm. I also say something like, sometimes I feel bullied by the karmic conditioning and it's the stopping of the, the habit energies, the slowing down of that horse as it's galloping in Zazen then we start to feel and understand a little bit more about our own psycho-emotional somatic makeup, which is like, oh, this triggers me. Oh, that doesn't trigger me. Or So without that stopping, we can never be mindful. We don't get to have the insights, right? Into impermanence, not self and, and suffering, the three marks of existence. So Zazen is a type of pause. And pausing is really, really important to spiritual life. And it does interrupt the capitalist society's principles. So we need to pause as much as we can, especially if we're overachievers like I am. I mean, if you're a couch potato, maybe you need to do a little bit more energy, but mostly pausing is very, very important. There's a couple of koans in the book that reference misusing sexual energy. And these particular koans are about women being empowered in their femininity. And I'm wondering if we could just choose one 
and read it aloud and then talk a little bit about that, offer a spontaneous okay. comment on it. And then do you have one that's a favorite for you? Well, I like the, so there's you mentioned three. One they're is, all from the hidden lamp, by right. the way. So yeah. I bow down to those women who made that book. That's a very, very important book. Uh, of the three, you have the one about the old woman burns down the hermitage, which I love. And then there's Mao Zhang's Dharma interview. And then, of course, <laughs> I love Aishan. Yeah, book. let's do Aishan's. That <laughs> ends the chapter. <laughs> And, 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 and that's also the one that's the most don't know mind. I yes. Believe. Okay. So it's on page 139. Would you like to read, to read it? Okay. Or do you well, want me to read it yeah. and then you can respond to it? Does that work a little better? Okay. You do that. Okay. So this koan is in the chapter, do not misuse sexuality. And the title is Aishan's deep thing. Aishan was a nun at the monastery of Sai Joji. The abbot of Sai Joji wanted to send a message to the abbot of the great temple Ngakuji, which was known for its rough treatment of outsiders. None of the monks from Sai Joji dared to go. Only Aishun was willing to volunteer. When Ngakuji monks saw her walk through the main gate, one of them rushed forward raised his robes to expose himself and said, this monk's thing is three feet long. How about it? Aishan calmly lifted her robes, spread her legs and said, this nun's thing is infinitely deep. She dropped her robes and continued down the corridor, unaccosted. Why do you love this koan? I don't totally understand the koan, and that's one of the reasons I like it. But this is the story of these incredibly brave women who did Zen even under the worst conditions that they weren't supposed to be there as women. This one is, you know, like the men so obsessed with sex they're going to scare her off by exposing themselves or the power of men's sexuality. And I love it that she's undisturbed by that. She understands herself as infinitely deep and she's able to manifest that in a split second, raise her robes and say, and this is infinitely deep and get the guy to be flustered so she can move on. And the other one, which is the one I thought we were gonna do, but that ends with something like, I'm paraphrasing, everything comes from this. You know, the woman's birthing, it's the source. It's the source of everything. And kind of puts patriarchy on its head flips it around that women's spirituality, women's creativity, women's birthing, women's infinite depth is equal to what all the men have done year after year and dismissed us. The mystery and profundity of sexual energy, both when it comes to people who identify as men and people who identify as women, is something that we don't often discuss in Zen or in life, never mind Zen. Catholicism is where I grew up. Like you mentioned about the hidden lamp and all these stories of these enlightened women over centuries that were forgotten about because of this patriarchal thread through the ancestry, the tradition coming through this patrilineal line. The, the other koan that you have in the book is Miao Zhang's Dharma interview where she's lying naked on the bed when this monk comes in and he points to her genitalia, to her vagina and says, what is this place? And Miao Xiang replied, all the Buddhas of the three worlds, the six patriarchs and all great monks everywhere come out of this place. It's the same thing. Like this is infinitely deep. 
And not that it's, and I think it's because of the disempowerment, right? The, the fact that women still in many parts of the world, and as we can see with these most recent Supreme Court decisions, that women still are disempowered. So it's not, it's not like an anti-male thing. It's like, can we even it a little bit where women are equal to men? That it takes both. Everything's been tipped so much to the side of patriarchy that it's like, oh, my thing's three feet long. Or can I enter? Or what is this place? It's like, well, what about the woman side of it? So it's like balancing out both sides, not trying to eradicate one side. But for so long, that patriarchal side has been the most dominant. And with these koans that you mentioned in this chapter, it's reminding us of, yes, the profundity, the infinite, the infinitude of women's bodies and the mystery as birth givers. So there's quite a bit of remedial work that needs to be done in the world, obviously, but in Buddhism too, of this honoring and bringing forth the after qualities that are usually put in the camp of feminine qualities. And that's partially what the book is about, is that our human stories need to be honored as well as the transcendent aspect of meditation. And I, and I got this idea of balancing ascending and descending from this idea of remedial work. And one thing about remedial is sometimes you have to emphasize the side that's underdeveloped. And I think that we're in the period where the softer qualities, the non-product production qualities need to be emphasized. And when we personalize or bring that down to like an individual, it also holds true in that like, oh, so what, what part of Heather is underdeveloped or is not being seen or met? What's happening here also is reflective in the wider world, as you mentioned about power and war, victim and perpetrator. Everything that's going on in this body-mind also, can also be seen in a larger context. And just to close out our conversation with this other koan of Master Ma is unwell. So I'll read the koan. Master Ma is unwell. Great Master Ma was unwell. The temple superintendent asked him, teacher, how has your venerable health been in recent days? Master Ma said, sun face Buddha, moon face Buddha. What I love about it is that really, when I look at the koans, they are not saying we should grasp or cling to the transcendent aspect they're always talking about duality and flexibility and moving back and forth. I mean, they're classically about that, but I haven't felt that in our human practice, we have been able to do that very well. The sun-faced Buddha is the eternal, is the transcendent, is everything is always happening right at this moment. And the moon-faced Buddha is the descendant Buddha, which is very much involved in the stories and the human life and how we have to practice with our human life. For me, also with the sun-faced, moon-faced Buddha, so like you're saying, the eternal aspect, the absolute truth, and then the relative truth of the moon-faced Buddha. And then I also feel like just with the, the yin-yang of masculine and feminine, like you're saying, it's all about integrating, like excavating, integrating. How can we integrate the transcendent with the descendant, the feminine with the masculine, my Dharma life with the karmic life? And I find now in my new state of being that I have stopped compartmentalizing conceptualizing, labeling, because those things keep the opposites very strong. And I don't want to do that anymore. And it's not that I, it just feels like my dharma 
energy is, oh, it's, I got this from Ken McLeod, who's a Tibetan teacher. He taught me about interrupting karmic momentum. That's where I got a lot of my teaching. And he also talked about the dissolution of the pattern. What happens when the pattern's starting to dissolve? And that's what I'm feeling right now, that this, that I'm integrating, that I'm not being dualistic, that the softness and the gentleness, the availability, the openness I'm feeling has come because somehow my dharmic energy is dissolving the pattern of harshness that came from Jewish genocide and going back and sexual misconduct, all the things. And that's how I'd like to end is healing is a mystery. You do a lot of work, but also you need the mystery of the Dharma, of the unknown that comes and helps you dissolve the pattern. Thank you so much, Sunface Judith, Moonface Judith for your beautiful dharma offering of this book, Untangling Karma. I really uh, felt your determination for liberation, your spirit of honesty and authenticity just shining through these pages. And it's really an inspirational example for me, and I hope for others, to really take up this practice as if to save our heads from fire and therefore save everyone else's heads from fire. And Lord knows, <laughs> Buddha knows we could use a lot more unity in our world, which of course begins with integrating and unifying our own body mind. So thank you so much for your time and for your great dedication to practice and liberation. I totally enjoyed our conversation. So thank you so much. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please support me by subscribing to my Spark Zen newsletter and follow me on Twitter at Spark Zen. The opening and closing music is courtesy of my friend Jeffrey Ledesma Contune and Alexis Girogopoulos. Thank you for listening. Thank you.